So I have a question for you all. What? Do you, when's the last time you hand wrote somebody a letter? For me, <laughs> it's easy to answer because oh, it, it was yesterday. What? What? I know. And so I just had a baby shower. Aww. And so tradition is that you write thank you letters to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was actually so taxing. I wrote one. And that's it. You're like, yay. <laughs> Good like, for you. How about we write a letter to, kind of to it everyone? Hurt. My hand hurts it's just now like a when I write letters. Yeah. Um, Dr. Payne, are you I love that. Writer? Yeah, I do. And this is going to sound really cheesy, but I wrote a letter to my husband for our anniversary. Uh, it was just about a month ago. Yep. But I, I'm not a huge letter writer. It's just mm-hmm. that that happened to be a few weeks ago. How about you? I can't actually think of the last letter I wrote, but I can. I mean, I write cards to people here and there. Mm-hmm. I, I do remember some years ago, I used to write my grandparents' letters before they got the internet. Oh, and cute. they actually asked me to stop because they said my handwriting was too bad. Oh, <laughs> they oh, did? That's tragic. They How did, did they like start that uh, off? You know, like, you know, I think they were kind of like, well, you know, we really like the letters, but it's we kind of can't read your handwriting. Oh my goodness. So maybe we could, you could talk to us a different way. And, you know, that is so funny. You're kind of like the Apostle Paul because there's a little section in one of the letters that we're going to talk about where he talks about his handwriting. Maybe it was kind of wonky like yours. Welcome, (laughs) students. Welcome to the I Need to Know More podcast where we dive deep back into some of the material from the Monday lecture. Um, we are pleased to have Dr. Sarita Edwards here at Welcome, the podcasting table. Happy to be here with us at the Barclay House at George Fox University in our little podcasting booth. We Cave. Call, we call it the bunker because it has cement walls. Yeah. Do you think, Dr. If, Edwards, you could call this the bunker? Yeah, definitely. I feel safe in here. If it's the world safe. ends, you come over here to the bunker. You come over here to the bunker. Yep. You podcast with us until glory. Yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it sounds right. like a long time. It sounds like a long could time. Could be and it, indeed, next week. It, it could We're be. We're not sure. <laughs> Thanks so much for your lecture, Dr. Edwards. Um, what a corpus we gave you to lecture on. All of Paul's letters, some of the most significant material in the New Testament. It's like maybe 20, I think it's like 20% of the New Testament are just these letters of Paul. I think the New Testament breaks down like about 44% of the New Testament are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then like 20 or 25% are these letters of Paul. And then another like 40% are like other things like Revelation and James and Hebrews and letters not by Paul. But Paul's the most like prolific single author, even though a lot of his letters are actually really short. So the total volume isn't as much as maybe people sometimes think. But what was it like for you to try to tackle all of the letters? In a, well, in a students, as you know, I didn't tackle all the letters. <laughs> I chose my favorite, which Yay. is Ephesians, because there's just so many. That's and true. you have to know the context and what's happening in the in that specific church. And mm. so I just focused on one, Ephesians. Yeah. What is it that you personally enjoy about Ephesians? Um, I mentioned this a little bit when I was lecturing, but I actually went to Ephesus. Oh, oh, and that's so that so I mean, fancy. so when you have like connection with the land, and I remember walking the streets, and so it just brought everything to life. Ephesus is in Turkey. Yeah, yeah. What was that like? Like just being in in Turkey and just like setting foot in a place where the New Testament occurred in that sense. It's it was actually really amazing. I was quite young at the time, but as I was walking through the streets because there's tons of different ruins there mm. both both cities that you see in scripture and asia minor but also other cities that don't make it into the letters or the bible and it was just fun it was fun to walk the streets it was fun to oh, see yeah. the the roman ruins everywhere to walk around that's 
these Beautiful. these places, right? Like Romans to the you know Paul's writing to the church in Rome, Ephesians in Ephesus, Corinthians, Corinth. Like these are real places in the ancient world where churches were. So we started the Bible with like the creation, right? Where it's like there's this one moment, there's one God, there are no two people, and it's all very narrow. Then it goes to Abraham, he's one person, promise. But it's like the and then you have law codes. But I I find the Bible's movement just striking overall. Like the Bible doesn't end with a law code; it ends with these little personal notes that are sent out and that became universal for the church all throughout this crazy Mediterranean world. Like that movement is like the movement of the spirit that you see in the book of Acts or that movement, that missionary movement that Christianity treasures like outward toward all of these other places. It's true. And undergirding these letters are just people's relationships. Yeah. And mm-hmm. you see Paul often at, at the beginning of letters kind of says, Hey, to all the different people. And then at the end just says, you know, this person says, hi, this person says, hi, this person says, hi, say hi to this person. And you just see like, Oh, these are real people. Right. It's, one, it's lived out in such a particular way, faith, right? One of the things that I like about the letters is, and this, this gets back to something that we've talked about many times um, in this course, which is just how very human the story of between God and people mm. that that big story really is because you see, some really extraordinary people to admire. And then you also see some really petty kind of ridiculous things going on. And I, I like that too. And you just see so much of the personality of the letter writers too. Like we, we were talking about how sometimes the biblical narrative has this kind of dispassionate, you know, like, like a, a, a person who's kind of set apart from the story, uh, a narrator, but these letters you get to see like Paul to me, he's kind of cranky. Like oh, kinda, totally. a lot, right? He's he's portrayed <laughs> very differently in the letters, like that he's he's dictating than uh-huh. he is in the book of Acts. That's for sure. That's and true. he's like defending himself and he's like, You guys think I'm arrogant, but I'm not. I love <laughs> yeah. you. But I'm you the best. I'm the best. You said I was this, but I'm not. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I kinda, in the Bible. I, I I like an ornery person. Mm. So I I have an affinity with him, but I bet he wasn't everybody's cup of tea. In fact, we know he was not everybody's cup of tea. No, I've I mean, often wondered right. if I would be friends with Paul. And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> well, Maybe I'd read his letters. It does go to show you, though, that, I mean, I think we're right today to look at our, our, like our general atmosphere of faith and say, like, oh, Christians are too divisive and there's just too many churches. We do, you know, and it's like that feels true, too. But it's like when you look back to the earliest founding moments of Christianity, oh you have arguments. You know, we're participating when we argue with each other as Christians, provided we do it in the right way and within the boundaries that scripture and our faith set for us, we're, we are reenacting the early church. Oh, my goodness. Can I just soapbox in my own field of expertise for just like two seconds? I do know it. that this is not Go I'm not a Bible it. scholar, but I'll just say this. The history of Christianity in the U.S. is full of people making the same erroneous assumptions about the early church, which is the idea that the early church was. Mm this beautiful place of no conflict and mm-hmm. they and it's they usually cite that passage in acts where they talk about the believers held everything to get you know they're right. all yes. things in unity right. but really the book of acts and the entire new testament is full of conflict over things big and small and this idea of going like the idea that we should always try and go back to that mm-hmm. is i don't know why you'd want to especially if you read some of these kind of more like the salacious details of what's going on in these churches. Like, why would you want to go back? But there's some comfort there too, because it just means that we aren't actually maybe any more messed up than the people in the, in these letters, right? Like right. I can yeah. identify if, with these it people. It feels very encouraging to Me read too. the about these communities. Totally. And there is a movement. That's a real movement. 
mm. um, that Dr. Payne is mentioning, the Acts 2 movement. And some of us have come from churches mm-hmm. where we are letting – it's coming out of a good place. I just want to say that sure, out loud. definitely. It's coming out of a place that let's go back to mm-hmm. the sharing and loving and community, but it, it is ignoring – Everything else that happens after. <laughs> right, right. Well, just blocking out everything else. Sometimes these conflicts too are very productive conflicts that yes. can lead to other things. Like the book of Romans, a book you didn't talk about in the lecture, but just briefly, like what's the historical context of Romans? I mean, Romans is treasured by Christians all over the world, especially in the United States. A lot of churches will just like Romans, Romans, Romans. Almost every huge reform in the church People trace themselves back to Romans. And Romans is not, Romans is barely even a letter. Like people did not write letters like Romans in the ancient world. Like that, this is like a suit, it's like a letter just on steroids. But like, what is this letter about? It turns out like right before this letter had been written, um, um, there was a huge conflict between between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Rome because of some problems there. I think there was a fire and an emperor named Claudius had actually expelled Jews from Rome. And there was actually conflict between within Christian communities and Paul, he clearly, and he, this is explicit, like he wants to go to Spain as a missionary, but he needs a base to do that. And he sees he can't use Jerusalem as a base anymore. So he needs another base. He needs that base to be the Roman church, but they're also like hating each other. Right. So he has to tell this long letter to be like, get along, get, like, Hey <laughs> Jews, you've been chosen, but yet, yet also there has to be room for some other people. And it's like a tree being grafted in and everybody's, you know, so he's like doing this real like community repair work in that really long, theologically deep and rich letter, which is why I think it's so anthemic for our times and for all times, because you see in it, the work of somebody trying to patch together a divided community in order to be able to do missionary work so he can take an offering from them. I mean, that's a very practical thing, but something he needed, right? If he was going to be able to do that. And so um, even a book like Romans, which has there's so much we could talk about, right? With Romans, it has a very practical sort of root to it in what the apostle Paul needed and wanted to do. Not only like for God's immediate work, like with those people, but also for his broader missionary thing. And I think that just, kind of comes back to like a big picture question is like, how do you even begin to read the letters? Yeah. Mm. And and yeah. so, uh, so, so something that we've been talking about that's, that's inspiring for us as scholars and just as followers of Christ mm-hmm. is it's helpful to know the history of the, of the little mm. community, mm-hmm. whether it's a little community like the town of Ephesus or a large city like Rome, it, it is helpful. And, and often in the Bible that you have, there'll be, like a little summary right at the beginning that tells a little bit about the book, but sometimes it includes something about the town, right. and that is helpful. Yeah, our class, our class study Bible that we're using, that we're basing this on uh, this time at least, the Life with God study Bible, it has those 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 entry points. And a lot of Bibles, no matter what Bible you're using, you might even get those. Or you know, the internet is so beautiful. Granted, there's a lot of junk out there, but like you can do research. Like you can really research this stuff. It's really available to average people, um, and not just scholars, right? Like yeah, any, anyone and and knowing the context. It makes a little bit more sense. Totally. Um, I wonder if we could take a deep dive into a text, as is our custom here on Mm -hmm. the I Need to Know More podcast. I want to know more about some specific passage, just something we can kind of sink our teeth into. Anyone have an idea for a text we could read and talk about? Well, my personal favorite of all of the letters is, is 1 Corinthians. Oh, it is. Maybe it's a little bit of a cliche. But yes, why, it is my first. Why, is it, why is it a cliche and why is it your favorite? Well, I'm going to tell you because I like the cliched passage, First uh, Corinthians 13, um, the very famous love passage. Love mm-hmm. is patient. Love is kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, I'd encourage you to take a read. It's often t- 
talked about at weddings. First Corinthians chapter 13 mm-hmm. is where that is. Yeah. 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 But I just, um, you know, Romans Paul is a little, um, like I, I can appreciate his genius because a lot of people are like, why do, why do we use Paul? And I'm like, well, cause he's a genius first off. But, um, so I appreciate the genius, but I like the, I, I find there to be more beauty in, in the Corinthian letters. And I like to think about like, what was Corinth like, um, you know, like what, what were the people like in Rome? They're at odds with each other. What are the people like in, in Corinth? They're also at odds with each other, maybe for different reasons. So I just like mm-hmm. that. Um, so yeah, I think we should choose first Corinthians. I, I think to just say something about Corinth too, by way of like that little Bible intro thing, like this was a, this was a huge and important ancient city for a lot of like, it's, it's in ancient Greece, right? And it was a really important city for a really long time. Um, um, I think the Romans actually destroyed Cor- Corinth as part of their war campaign at some point, um, but built a new city and it became like almost like a capital in the region. And so Corinth is a big, big place. And it's going to be a place where people, most people are not Christians, right? They're going to be doing Greek and Roman religions of various kinds. Like Corinth is not Jerusalem. Like this is not like a center of, 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 you know, of Jewish life and activity in the way that like Jerusalem would be, or like Alexandria, Egypt might've been, or some other places like, but it's a big metropolitan place. And so if he just without even knowing anything else to know that Paul's writing a letter to people there is to know that he's writing a letter to people that probably have some really practical problems to work out about how to worship Jesus. Just given the fact that probably all of their neighbors are doing, you know, animal sacrifices to other gods. And then like, how does that even work? And then like, what do you do when your neighbor's doing something or participating in certain kind of civic religion? Like, oh, we every day on this, every year on this day of the year, we burn a little incense to the Roman emperor. Why aren't you doing that? You know, why aren't you worshiping and saying the things we're saying? Like you could imagine the conflicts early Christians would have had in an urban setting like that, or that even Christians have in an urban setting today, right? Yeah, and if you go to Corinth today, um, to the ruins, you can actually walk and see these massive temples. Wow. So we're talking about Roman pantheon. And so as people are coming to Christ, as Dr. Doke is saying, they are leaving this way of worship that they've been doing since they're little kids yep. for generations. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's a lot of confusion about like, okay, what does it look like to worship one God? Oh, And without a temple. Yes, right. no That's temple right. and no statues of the deity. Yeah. What so are you supposed to do? Where are you supposed to go? The temple is still in Jerusalem. Oh. Yeah. So the one thing I think that could be before, should we read First yes. Corinthians yes. 8? Should yes. we read the whole thing verse Let's by verse? The, I think a thing to know though, because it's not explained in the passage and maybe we could just flesh this out so that we can just like s- hit the ground running after we read is he's going to be talking about this issue of what he calls food sacrificed to idols. So in cultures that do animal sacrifice, like in the ancient world, like they might have at Corinth or like even like ancient Israelites did in the Bible. Like in, you see a little vignette about this in the book of First Samuel. They're not just sacrificing the animal and throwing all the meat away. You sacrifice certain parts of an animal, maybe in some religious systems, like the fat or the bones, but you keep the meat. The meat could be for priests to actually eat or for the sustenance of the wor- of the, the cultic community like it is in the book of First Samuel. There's this weird story about some of Samuel's sons who are, they're behaving like really badly and taking all the best meat for themselves. So it's like there, it's for the priests. But in other religions, you know, they might have just sacrificed or offered little fatty parts. And then the rest of the meat is just like for human consumption. And so there were probably markets and places, maybe even at temples or maybe outside of them or maybe just on the street you could easily do more research into this and get a lot more detail than I'm being, but where people could just buy 
the meat that had been that had been used in these religious sacrifices, which now you got to think about this as a Christian, right? Like if you haven't read this passage yet, just think about like what would your what do you think your response as a Christian should be? If that meat is being sold at market and you're a Christian and you know that those gods are not 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 the true God, it's not Jesus Christ, and that meat is for sale, should you just buy it and eat it? Or and then what do you do if there are some people around you who are like, they're totally buying it and eating it and you're scandalized and you're just like, how dare you? How is Paul going to actually navigate this with this early community? I think it's, it's super brilliant and challenging. So I just wanted to set that up. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm sorry. Let's get into it. Okay, I can start. So this is 1 Corinthians 8. Now, concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. But anyone who God loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food off offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so accustomed to, to idols until now. They still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, um, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their failing, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Well, I, now, I know that we've probably all read this passage before, so maybe it's not a surprise, but I don't know. Do you think that this answer is at least potentially surprising to this problem of the food sacrifice titles? I thought he was going in a different direction because I have read this before. <laughs> but I was surprised at the end. He's like, and because you kind of build up like the idols aren't real. Mm. It doesn't matter. It's mm. because people with weak consciences mm -hmm. don't eat it. Mm -hmm. But then at the end, he kind of does a twist and he goes, but if it, if it hurts people, I'm not going to do it. So I don't do it. What about you, Dr. Payne? Was it, do you think this is a surprising answer? Is it a surprising answer? I, I do because I am thinking back to um, the book of Acts. And I, I'm, I'm just thinking about this ongoing culture clash, like series of culture clashes mm -hmm. and like how the, the relationship between like, the material world and the spiritual world. And I, I'm, I guess I, I think that it is a little bit um, surprising because it's we're It's quite even handed, right? Like Paul kind of embodies the perspective of both sides and then chooses 
he doesn't seem to be saying like, this is what everybody should do, but he says, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. What about you? I, I guess I do. Maybe I'm not sure, but I, I do find, I do find it potentially surprising because I think a Christian at any stage who maybe hasn't read this or wouldn't, you know, hasn't, hasn't considered this issue. You might think that Paul would say, like, I think what sounds maybe to a lot of people like the quote, right. Christian, Christian answer would be like, no, of course you shouldn't eat food sacrificed to idols. What are you crazy? Who cares if those gods are even real? Like they're participating in a wrong system of worship. These, these, these people are delusional. Why would you possibly support their religious system in any way or participate in it in any way by purchasing anything that has to do with any of this? Like, are you crazy? But instead he's like, well, some people do and some people don't. Well, and, you know. Okay. To me, this is a very distant, like conversation. Can we think of something mm. a little bit more like a, a conversation that Christians have today oh, yeah. about something that you should or shouldn't do because it's like too close to something spiritually like not right. of God. I can think of one from our recent history, but I don't know. What's what's like a current? Well, the thing that came to my mind is because I came to faith in churches that were in a certain group um, associated with like a, a group called the Assemblies of God. Mm-hmm. And I went to a, a college that was a Christian college called Evangel University for my last two years I transferred, which was an Assemblies of God school. And there I learned that in the history of these Pentecostal, so-called Pentecostal groups, that in their early history, they had a lot of stuff like this. Actually. Yes, yes. Going to bowling alleys. Yes. Ha- males having piercings of any kind. <laughs> Um, going to movies, gambling, gambling. And why? Because, um, you know, a a bowling alley, it's like a bowling alley. That's like family fun time. Like, how could you do that? Well, the reason was because bowling alleys, especially throughout the early 20th, earlier 20th century were seen as like dens of iniquity where people would go to smoke and drink and, you know, do all the kinds of stuff that they thought as a Christian you shouldn't do. And so I, those must've been direct. And I think those analogies would still apply today, right? Like some Christians would say, Oh, I don't drink alcohol or I would never be seen in a bar or there are maybe like, I mean, there probably aren't too many Christians today who say they wouldn't see movies like secular movies that aren't explicitly Christian movies, but I bet there are some. And I think that that's, that's a place where you could say, should I, should I consume entertainment that is not directly edifying in a directly Christian way? Probably not a lot of families do it that way, but I could imagine some, I mean, I know some people who are definitely conscious of that. I think alcohol is a really good, good one. Oh, yeah, you brought up, example. I mean, you, you brought it up. I, th- yeah. I think like indirectly, that was the one that came to mind because it used to be called like in the like early 20th century, it used to be called the devil's brew. Like the it was like brew. kind of seen as like connected to something mm-hmm. like spiritually mm-hmm. outside right. of the Christian life. And I was trying to go back through this passage and think like, what if he's talking about alcohol? Right. How does that work? Like, and so he's basically, let's just like substitute this. I'll Mm -hmm. paraphrase, Mm -hmm. but he basically says, so concerning drinking alcohol. (laughs) And then he'll, then he goes through and he goes, you know, for some of you, it's not going to be that big of a deal for others of you. It's going to be a major stumbling block. And so for the sake of those, like, Oh, I won't do it. He doesn't make like a, a general, like right. prescription to everyone. I don't know. Yeah. How does that feel like something? Well, a little I, I was thinking of like alcohol as well, because really I think that is something that maybe in a religious community in recent decades, that would be true. But I think even in just families and marriages, yeah. if, if one of the spouses or a family member, um, dad, mom, auntie, uncle has, it really struggles with abuse of alcohol. 
then then there are family members that would say, for you, I'm not going to drink. Oh, totally. I don't drink because it's tempting to you, so it's out. no alcohol in the house. And that would be an act of love you would do for a family member. Anybody should want to do for their family. Like, would you want a family member relapsing into alcoholism because you just wanted to flaunt the fact that it was not a big deal to you? Like, that would be crazy, right? And I think he's saying it would be just that crazy to, like, eat food sacrifice to idols in the face of someone who is offended by that because, like, the unity between believers here and like wounding, like causing another person to sin by, because they in their conscience see that as wrong. And they're now they're thinking about, cause like, what are you doing to the other person? If you, like, if you're a person who doesn't drink and I do, and I'm just like drinking in front of you and acting like it's no big deal. Now you're having to struggle with thinking like, why is he doing that? And is he wrong? And what is he doing this to like hurt me or whatever? And it's like, I'm putting you now in that position. So Paul actually puts it all back on, on the believer who has the quote stronger conscience to say, you think you're so strong? Well, then handle yourself in a way that's actually beneficial to the other person. What I think is interesting about that interpretation is that that puts the the um, unethical or immoral onus not on the act itself, right? Because it, it's not actually right. about anything about meat sacrifice to idols. It's about like what you're doing to your fellow um, believer. And yeah. I, I don't know. I kind of like that because it's like it, it actually the act he seems to th- think is a little bit neutral because he's like these gods aren't even actually real. Yeah, he's making a little philosophy there. Yeah. Like, so he's like, and I don't know. I actually wonder what early, you know, hearers of this text would think like, right. would they agree with him? But one of the questions that I had and I don't know what I'd love to listen. I'd love to ask our, our resident missionary here, um, Dr. Edwards, like who or, either of you, who do you think? would have had the hardest time with this like like would it be because if you were like coming from judea you might not even like you might be like uh these these gods or whatever like would it be the people who were raised there that would have the hardest time with eating the food or would it be the people who were not like because we have this church that's kind of starting to mill around a little bit through these letters and through missions efforts who's going to have the hardest time with this that was a question i had i think the answer is we don't know because, you know, these people, poor, they're long dead. <laughs> so we can't <laughs> ask them. Um, just thinking about my own experience, like traveling the world and talking to people who have been raised in different religious traditions and have become followers of Christ. Mm-hmm. And they've come from traditions where maybe they've gone to temples, like the Shinto temple, and they've actually, you know, right. doing offerings to mm-hmm. the kami. Mm-hmm. Right. Almost consistently, I'm trying to rack my brain now. They, the the people that have come from the other religions, mm-hmm. have had a harder time. Mm. In the sense, not a hard time. In the sense of, they don't want to do this anymore. Right. That and makes so sense. if we put this in this right. context, the people in Corinth who grew up going to the temples, they feel like this is wrong, and they want a clean break. And so, in my personal experience in twenty first century, mm-hmm. my guess would be it would be the people who grew up in the temples. That makes a lot of sense to me. That's what I was feeling too. Yeah. Like if you were somebody who was abstaining from this, that would be a real moral struggle, mm-hmm. and you'd really be giving something up, you know, too potentially. And so, and then, and then I think the problem is you're looking at other people who don't have your same conviction, and then it puts you in a position. I I love this word conscience, there conscience in, in in there because um as many of you know george fox university has a quaker quaker heritage mm-hmm. quaker founding and, and we've had strong connections to quaker churches and conscience is actually a really big deal in quaker circles mm. like just l- listening to the the kind of like that inner voice within you when maybe no law or person can even really tell you what to do 
and that the preciousness of your conscience of just like that voice inside you. I think it's stunning to see Paul endorsing that on these issues. Um, and it's interesting he doesn't yeah. say the Holy Spirit. He says conscience. He says your conscience. Yeah, over right? and over and over again. Right? Yeah, that is really So it's like he's not talking about a direct... It, it also raises the question then, which I know probably a lot of us would want to ask, which is like, okay, so what are these areas then that are just open to conscience? And certainly we could sit forever and debate like the boundaries of that. But I think it's just stunning that on this issue, which you might think would be something that there would be a clear Christian answer. He's saying, actually, this is an issue of conscience and Christians need to treat each other with total deference on those issues. I love the idea that it's like, it's the preference for the weaker person. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a distinct and beautiful aspect of like Christian fellowship, which is it should always, we should always be deferring to the weaker. And it really stands out to me as we talk about it. If we just think of Paul, the apostle Paul's own journey, Mm -hmm. how far he's come. Mm. Like he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Like Mm -hmm. he was a hundred percent totally a Jew of the Jews. And now he's like shifted through experience, through the Holy Spirit, wow. right. in just wisdom and life experience. Right. To and he's being like, whatever, so <laughs> open to something that I don't think he would have said this wow. when he first converted. Mm. Wow. I love that. It makes me think of like, if you ever want to meet some very like faithful and on the fringe believers, you got to talk to missionaries, right? Like you have to, in, in whatever missions context, because... They're the ones who I think they just their their life experiences teach them a much different approach. And you see this with Paul. He has he has determined what is the core things that you need to believe as a follower of Christ. And then everything else is peripheral. Mm. And he's saying this is peripheral. But out of love for others, we we will I'm going to personally not eat this meat. But but he's determining this is core. And then all these other things are cultural. Mm -hmm. Love it. Stunning. Thank you, Dr. Edwards, for Thank joining you. us for this discussion. It's been so, so wonderful. Yeah, fun Thank to be you. here. Yeah. Mm-hmm.